0: Welcome to the Medici Podcast, episode 51 Family Feud. We're last, with Alessandro de' Medici, the tone of his government as the first Duke of Florence was set. won over some of Florence's working in lower middle classes by taking a personal interest in their lives and struggles. But he had also alienated the elite, the automati, by deliberately excluding them from administrative positions. Alessandro's most determined enemy, however, was his cousin, Ippolito. Ippolito resented being a cardinal, but even after Pope Clement's death, he remained in the church, There's nothing he could do since the church remained his source of income and political influence. Without it, he had nowhere to go, especially since Alessandro was unlikely to welcome him with open arms. However, this does not mean Ippolito was helpless or gave up his secular ambitions. Instead, he set up a refuge for Florentine political exiles at Rome where he welcomed disaffected Republicans and members of the Automati. What exactly Ippolito hoped for by doing this isn't clear, besides the fact that he hadn't ruled out one day leaving the church. Maybe he hoped to exploit even a resurgent Republican campaign against Alessandro, but make himself the next duke or he thought they would make him the unofficial head of state like in the good old days of Lorenzo the Magnificent. Personally, though, my bet is that he just didn't think that far ahead. Ippolito was encouraged in his designs by the new pope, Alessandro Farnese, Pope Paul III. Clement had given Ippolito some church offices that brought in quite a lot of income. Paul III would have liked to get... Ippolito out of the way so those offices and their incomes would be at his disposal. The Pope would achieve this either by fulfilling Ippolito's wish for a secular political career or by encouraging him to go over to Edge, whatever worked. With the Pope's blessing and the support of the Florentine exiles, in May of 1535, Ippolito sent a delegation to Emperor Charles V himself in Barcelona. The delegation was led by Jacopo Nardi, a former supporter of Savonarola. But Ippolito wasn't arguing for the restoration of the Republic. Instead, he urged Charles to make him the Duke instead, on the grounds that Alessandro's tyrannical rule was so hated among Florence's elite that another pro-French Republic might come to power. Why were Alessandro's Republican and Savonarolan allies also alright with just trading in one Medici duke with another? Well, maybe Ippolito wasn't the only one not thinking that far ahead. The saying, the enemy of my enemy is my friend, is a cliché for a reason. In any case, the alliance would not be put to the test. Charles was busy getting ready to fight the Ottoman Turks in Tunisia and had no time or inclination to rearrange Florence's politics all over again. Disappointed, Ippolito turned to more dramatic measures. He backed a plot by the Bishop of Marseille, Giovanni Battista Cibo, to assassinate Alessandro by planting gunpowder under the house of Alessandro's mistress. Cibo was arrested and tortured into a confession. Still, Chibo's family was too powerful to alienate, so he was eventually released after several harrowing months in prison. It probably also helped that Chibo's confession clearly implicated Ippolito as the one both funding and engineering the plot. Alessandro knew his cousin was the one he actually had to fear, and he apparently struck back. Not long after Chibo's dramatic confession while traveling from Rome to Naples, Ippolito and his entourage stopped at a town named Itri. After a simple meal of bread and chicken soup, Ippolito became violently ill. Right away, Ippolito and his friends suspected poison. Normally, accusations of poison before the modern era were thrown around without evidence, but in this case, it may have been true. Ippolito's steward, Giovanni Andrea, the servant who would have been responsible for his meals, was beaten and tortured by being hung from his wrists until his shoulders were dislocated. At first he denied any guilt, then Giovan Andrea claimed in a letter Alessandro had promised to make him a nobleman and give him a fiefdom if he had killed a So Giovan Andrea purchased poisonous herbs from an apothecary, telling him it was for dealing with a mouse problem. While his steward was confessing and begging for his life, Ippolito died at the age of 25 on August 10th, 1525. At his lavish funeral in Rome, Cardinal Ippolito's coffin was carried by members of his human menagerie. So, what actually happened? The fact that Ippolito suffered from a headache before his death does suggest cyanide poisoning. On the other hand, he was showing symptoms for days before Giovan Andrea claimed he had poisoned the soup. In fact, when papal officers conducted their own investigation, Giovan Andrea recanted his confession to them, saying he only did so under torture. Eventually, a Roman judge ruled that there was not enough evidence that Cardinal Ippolito had been poisoned, and Giovan Andrea was innocent. Although afterward, Giovanni Andrea fled to Florentine territory, suggesting that perhaps he was seeking Alessandro's protection. As with so many centuries-old murder mysteries, we simply can't know whom, if anyone, was at fault. Still, the timing of Ippolito's death, so soon after he was implicated in a conspiracy to take Alessandro's life, is very suggestive, if still circumstantial. Whatever the facts, it was widely believed that Alessandro murdered his cousin. A poet and scholar as far away as Venice, Veronica Gambata, remarked that Ippolito could have saved his life if he had just lived and let live. The scandal was also an embarrassment to Charles V., because of the suspicion that the duke he raised to the throne had committed murder, he agreed to hear from both Alessandro and his critics in Naples that winter. But Alessandro's enemies still had an uphill battle. Charles V was very distracted. The Ottoman Empire was pressing on the borders of Charles' sphere of influence in both Hungary and North Africa. More and more German princes were converting to Protestantism, And the death of the Duke of Milan, Francesco II, without an heir, meant that once again King Francois of France would try to press his own claim to Milan through force. Nor did Charles forget that it was the Republicans of Florence who had remained steadfastly loyal to France. Their best bet really had been convincing Charles that Ippolito would make a better Duke than Alessandro. But of course, that hope died with Ippolito. Alessandro came to Naples armed with lawyers who could argue for his rights. Perhaps he did not need to bother. After delaying the decision for some time, Charles had Alessandro restore the property of some of the exiles and made him promise not to put them on trial in Florence without oversight from an imperial representative. The compromise was sealed with the long-anticipated marriage of Alessandro to Margaret. At least the wedding may have soothed any sting from the latest reminder that Charles V, not Alessandro, was the true master of Florence. But I think Charles V was also doing Alessandro a favor, pushing him into extending an olive branch to a very dangerous faction of enemies. If any monarch in history understood the importance of compromise, it was Charles V, emperor of the Patchwork Empire. As for Margaret, well, she was only 13 years old at the time of her marriage, about 10 years younger than Alessandro. As you might expect, her thoughts on all this have not been recorded. Among Alessandro's retinue to Florence were two young Medici men who will become very important to our story in the near future. One was the 16-year-old Cosimo de' Medici son of the mercenary leader Giovanni of the Black Bands, and Lorenzo the Magnificent's granddaughter, Maria Salviati. The other was the 21-year-old Lorenzino, or little Lorenzo, the grandson of Lorenzo il Popolano. Both were the heirs to the other major branch of the Medici family, the one descended from Cosimo's brother, Lorenzo the Elder. Lorenzino, in particular, had become a rising star in Alessandro's court, befriending the duke himself. Lorenzino was an ideal Renaissance courtier, handsome, athletic, kind, polite, witty, and scholarly. He was a writer and poet himself, and fluent in both Greek and Latin. He even earned the nickname, the Philosopher. However, it was clear that Lodenzino had a bit of an unstable streak. Pope Clement had exiled him for life from Rome because he had cut off the heads of several ancient statues for reasons that only made sense to him alone. In Florence, Lodenzino's personal habits got worse, even if he didn't, as far as we know, damage any more priceless artifacts. He developed a gambling addiction that ate up what little inheritance he got from his father and grandfather. But he was an active participant in Alessandro's womanizing and partying, so he was tolerated, even apparently well-liked. Lorenzino even wrote a comedic play, Eredosia, as part of the festivities in Florence celebrating Alessandro's marriage to Margaret. Charles V was also in attendance, when Charles arrived, a Latin inscription above these city gates declared, Enter Caesar into your most devoted city, which has never before seen a greater nor a worthier prince. There were also inscriptions celebrating Charles V's recent victories against the Ottomans in Austria and Tunisia. This had been all prepared by Alessandro's favorite artist, Giorgio Visati, who had no sleep for the last five nights. But Alessandro rewarded him well, giving him a bonus on top of the money owed to him by contract. Eventually the party was over, and Charles V left for Spain in order to prepare for yet another round of war with France. On the night of January 6th, while Alessandro waited in his private quarters for a visit from one of his lovers, Lorenzino and an unknown accomplice stabbed him to death. As one last gesture of defiance, Alessandro, the son of a servant or a slave who became a duke, bit Lodenzino's thumb as he died. Alessandro was only 27 years old at the time of his murder, and he had been the first duke of Florence for less than five years. It's here at that cold January night that I have to admit the limitations the sources we have impose on me. I wish I could give a clear motive for why Lorenzino murdered a man who was not just his benefactor but was, at least at one point, a personal friend. But even the sources we have from people who claim to have known Lorenzino personally do not know for sure. He may have been lulled to the side of the Republicans who promised to pay off his debts or his education had filled his head like so many other young Italian noblemen of the democracy of Athens and the Roman Republic. Perhaps he had no more rational motive than that time he vandalized a bunch of priceless statues. Impulsive or not, Ludenzino had planned out his escape. He had gotten permission to pass the usually locked city gates at night, on the pretext that he was going to visit his brother Giuliano, who was seriously ill. Ludenzino wrote to the Republicans, urging them to act. However, there was no uprising against the Medici regime, no call for a full restoration of the Republic. The day after the murder, when news of Alessandro's death came out, the majority in the Senate decided that there would be another Duke, following Clement and Alessandro's earlier agreements with Charles V. The most likely alternatives to continuing the new monarchy were worse. Is there a Return to the chaotic, war-torn days of the last anti-Medici regime, or by refusing to continue the line of Medici dukes, they would hand Charles V an excuse to formally annex Florence and its domains to his empire. That had been the fate of Milan, which Charles quietly handed over to his son and heir, Philip, to rule at least in name. Now, the only real question was who the second Duke of Florence should be. They decided against naming Alessandro's illegitimate son, Giulio, who was still a child. And Alessandro's killer, Lorenzino, was naturally out of the question. Lorenzino's brother, Giuliano, was also ineligible, since he was a member of the clergy. Instead, they would elevate Cosimo. He at least was old enough to rule in his own right, and without one person, becoming overly powerful as his regent. At the same time, he was young enough that the ruling families of Florence could easily turn him into a puppet. That reasoning, at least, would turn out to be very much mistaken. In the meantime, Lodanzino first went to the city of Mirandola, where he wrote his apology, a treatise explaining his actions. Even with such a document, Lodanzino's true motive remains unclear. Beyond his claims that Alessandro was not a jot inferior to Caligula in his scorn, mockery, and torment of the people, with adulteries and violence, with loudish words and threats. Never mind that if Alessandro did have a Caligula esque lifestyle, Ledenzino was known to have participated in it. Hounded by Florentine agents, Lodanzino went to Istanbul, where he hoped to convince the sultan to join forces with France to liberate Florence from his own family once and for all. He also traveled to Paris to try to promote such an alliance. Eventually, King Francois in desperation would indeed sign off on an alliance with the sultan, but not for the benefit of Lodenzino. Ten years after he killed Alessandro, he was himself stabbed to death while living in Venice. His two killers had been hired by the imperial ambassador to Venice, who was acting on explicit orders from Charles V himself. Charles had personally liked Alessandro, and besides that, he could not let the murderer of his son-in-law escape justice. With Alessandro and Lorenzino's deaths, our story reaches a crossroads. For now, we will leave the untested, uncertain Cousin Cosimo on the Ducal throne while we leave him there. For the next season, we will focus on Alessandro's half-sister, at least his reputed half-sister, who at the time of his assassination was about to exceed even the wildest dreams of Lorenzo the Magnificent by becoming the future Queen of France.